0: Welcome to the Fueling the Future podcast, where we get to the bottom of issues, trends, and developments in future fuels and vehicles. I'm your host, Tammy Klein, principal consultant with Future Fuel Strategies. And with me today is Ron Alverson. Ron Alverson is a farmer. He is a founding member of the South Dakota Corn Growers Association. He's a board member of Dakota Ethanol. And he was presented with the Renewable Fuels Association's 2018 Industry Award, which is given to individuals that demonstrate dedication and innovation within the industry. So he also is a past chairman of the American Coalition for Ethanol. Ron, welcome to the program.
1: Thank you, Tammy.
0: It's great to have you. So to get the audience um, and the listeners a little bit of background. How did I come to cross paths with Ron Alverson? I'll tell you. So I started, I'd say almost two years ago. For my clients, I was following and continue to follow low carbon fuel standard issues, and I also cover biofuels market trends and things like that. And I was noticing that, hmm, wow, carbon intensity ethanol is really dropping. The average carbon intensity isn't dropping. Plants are doing all sorts of interesting things. And I sort of got this question of, huh, is ethanol the new advanced biofuel? And so I started to actually research that question for clients. And by the by, I met Ron and we started having an interesting exchange and conversations about exactly this topic and some of the research that he has been doing and contributing to where uh, we might see carbon intensity for ethanol dropping further. So, Ron, we'll start with the first question, now that we've sort of introduced a little bit of the the background. For the listeners who may not be familiar, can you talk about how you came to be involved in life cycle analysis modeling for for ethanol? Because that's going to be real key to what we talk about today.
1: Sure, Tammy. Uh, actually, it, it starts out quite a long time ago when I when I really think about my you know my past. Back in college, I took soil science classes, quite a few of them, and and one of my soil science teachers was really quite influential on us guys, especially those those of us that ended up on the farm. And he challenged us really hard to take care of the soil and and build the soil organic matter in the soil because that's going to help your productivity and. Soil organic matter happens to be about 58% carbon. So I've been watching that really all my life, all my farming career. We take a lot of soil samples. And back in about 1983, our farm decided to start doing dramatically reduced tillage and growing a lot more corn because I learned that from my my old soil science teacher that if you want to build your soil organic matter, you really need to reduce your tillage intensity. And you need to grow crops that produce a lot of biomass, a lot of residue, a lot of a lot of roots that have a chance to become soil organic matter. So when we after we changed, we we did a bunch of soil carbon testing to try to establish a baseline, and then we've been watching that uh, since really since 1983 very closely. And we've discovered that we've we've really built a lot of soil organic matter. In fact, it's it's been building at the rate of about a ton and a half of carbon dioxide equivalents per acre per year across our farm for more than 30 years. So we have wow. we've sequestered atmospheric carbon in our soil. And then, you know, I got involved in the ethanol industry as that came about. And we were all excited when the RFS2 came to be, you know, this, this new government uh, mandated demand for ethanol. Got involved with a local ethanol plant, helped. Helped raise the money and was on the first board of directors, so we got going in there. And then, as you remember, as part of the RFS2, it was uh, mandated that they they account for soil carbon losses for land use change. And when that, when the RFS2 was passed, there was uh, there was a lot of you know we had a lot of support our ethanol industry had, especially from a lot of environmentalists that. So that everybody kind of assumed that uh, ethanol was going to really reduce the greenhouse gases the carbon intensity of, of biofuels would be significantly lower than fossil fuel gasoline that would be replaced that we would replace well as as you remember after they did that first modeling for that and there was there was a lot of guesswork and there wasn't a lot of data to go on so lots of people really took a you know a wild what I'm calling now a wild guess at how much land use change and how much soil carbon would be lost from this new, de- new demand for corn production to make ethanol. And all of a sudden, if, if you remember, corn ethanol was viewed as really not much of a reduction in greenhouse gases compared to fossil fuels. So we lost tons of support. And, and it's been a struggle to try to get a lot of that back. So I, I kind of dug into those first land use change models and, and kind of realized that the numbers, the data they, they they were using to determine land use change from switches from forest land or grasslands to cropland were, uh, some were pretty unreasonable. You remember searching your stuff that was quite unreasonable. He had, uh, I do indeed. Carbon mm-hmm. int- he had the carbon intensity doubling. From uh, corn ethanol, which is, and made it a lot higher than fossil fuels. But there was also some pretty reasonable guesses that ended up to be, you know, 20 to 40 megajoules or grams per megajoule. So even, even with those reasonable guesses, corn ethanol didn't show much reductions. So I, I you know, I kind of looked at those assumptions they made in there and realized that, hey, we've been growing soil carbon in our soils by using corn at a faster rate than they've that they were calculating that changes from land use would be. So I realized, you know, we just got to go to work and point out to the life cycle modelers that, you know, corn ethanol can really improve our uh, carbon score if, you know, we account for that that's what's taking place on lots and lots, thousands and thousands of corn farms across the United States. So and unfortunately the even the, the current land use the current models that account for the, the total carbon intensity the life cycle corn, of corn ethanol, still don't account for the direct effects each biofuel crop has on soil carbon stocks. And that's what, what I've decided I, we need to work on in the industry, and that's what I've been working on. Now, maybe I'm in a little bit of a unique position, being a farmer mm-hmm. and watched the soil carbon change in our land over the many, over decades, actually. And then also being involved with ethanol, and uh, just taking a, a big interest in that. So maybe I'm a, a little bit of an odd duck in that regard. So that's how I got involved.
0: Well, just the odd duck the industry might actually need. <laughs> so, so you talk a little bit about a soil carbon and kind of what mm-hmm. you've been finding. So, how have you been translating? I guess what you're learning you know, to the, the life cycle modelers. So in particular, I know that you've been working with Argonne National Laboratory. I know that stakeholders such as the California Air Resources Board, you know, is, you know, aware of these issues and, you know, kind of what's been happening. Can you talk a little bit about that, what your work with, with Argonne has involved and how that's kind of unfolding and what you think, the outcome might be or could be?
1: You know, um, I thought the best way to approach that, that was uh, to look at the uh, existing soil carbon or the, the existing carbon intensity models for not only corn stober ethanol, cellu- corn stober cellulosic ethanol, or for, for that matter, any crop residue cellulosic ethanol, and compare that to the carbon intensity of grain ethanol. As you know, the carbon intensity of crop residue ethanol is. is quite low, very low. And one of the reasons it's low is because they do no accounting for what happens to soil carbon when we remove crop residue from those fields. And it's obvious that from looking at the scientific literature and talking to lots of folks that uh, it, it it has a really, really big impact. So I thought maybe the best thing to do was to make this issue, make some soil scientists aware of this issue that, hey, because of this California low carbon fuel standard market, There's this huge incentive to remove crop residue to make ethanol. They get really large premiums in California. So if that industry, I know it's it's had some stumbling, but if it did take off, you know, there could be a lot of residue removed from fields to make this stuff. And I thought the best way to approach that was to make sure soil scientists knew this issue because most soil scientists, practically all of them, are all about preserving soil productivity and, and building soil productivity. And the minute mm-hmm. you start removing crop residue, it's going to reduce the soil productivity and reduce the soil carbon content. So I uh, approached some of my friends that were soil scientists and one of them in particular was happened to be the head of the uh, what's called the American Society of Agronomy. And uh, there's actually three groups. There's the American Society of Agronomy, the Crop Science Society of America and the Soil Science Society of America, and they call themselves the Tri Societies. So I made those guys aware of what was happening, of this huge incentive to remove corn stover or any kind of crop residue to make cellulosic ethanol. And I also pointed out that there was no accounting for the loss in soil carbon from removing that soil, from removing that crop residue. And they jumped on it right away and decided, you know what, Um, you know, I think they acknowledge, you know, those, the guys that are doing that life cycle modeling, they're, they're mm-hmm. pretty good. They're darn good engineers. They know fossil fuels and they know emissions really well. But there was really little interaction with soil scientists when they developed those models to determine the, con- the carbon intensity. So they decided to have this workshop in California, right out at near the CARB headquarters in Sacramento and invite mm-hmm. in the folks from CARB, the folks from Argon, soil scientists from all over the United States, crop scientists, farmers, ethanol industry folks, corn industry folks, and various other folks like that. So they hashed over the issue and the results of that, they specifically recommended that, hey, we need just to do a meta analysis to provide data for you guys that do this carbon modeling to make those to do that soil carbon accounting correctly in those models. So um, the Department of Energy went to work with a bunch of soil scientists and they're currently updating or looking at all the literature and they're gonna update all their models to include that soil carbon accounting. And it looks from the pre- preliminary analysis that they're gonna, in fact, they already have, the Department of Energy, the great modelers have already increased the carbon intensity of crops to over ethanol. In fact, it's, it's about the same as corn grain ethanol right now and that's yeah. with a 30% removal rate. So I think we're making progress and the next step in that process that they've acknowledged to do, that they they would like to do, and but they haven't really started that literature review yet for that, is to determine the direct effects of each biofuel feedstock crop on soil carbon. For instance, they'll look at what corn does to soil carbon and what soybeans do to soil carbon or sugarcane ethanol does to soil carbon the way it's currently managed on average. So that's kind of the next step in the process. And it looks like in the end, too, that corn grain ethanol will get a nice credit for soil carbon sequestration. Soybeans will probably about be neutral. Or maybe a little negative on soil carbon. They just don't produce enough crop residue to maintain soil carbon or to build soil carbon for sure. And mm-hmm. in sugarcane ethanol, as we, as we know, you remove all the silver, all the residue off that field and it's all to the cane mill and that's combusted to for energy at the plant. Well, that's very hard in soil carbon. Sugarcane fields are likely losing soil carbon and that me- needs to be accounted for in sugarcane ethanol life cycle. So, so that's kind of an update on where, where we're trying to go with that.
0: So could you foresee levels of carbon in- intensity based on how these analyses go? What what would be a, 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 CI, a, you know, a, a potential CI range that we could see for corn ethanol? Could it be at, on, on an average of 60, 50, 30, 40, less than that? What's your projection?
1: Right now, Tammy, and you likely know this, that the EPA uh, did their initial life cycle analysis for corn ethanol, for corn grain ethanol, way back in 2008 and 9, and they haven't updated it. So they're still sticking to their old number, which says corn ethanol won't have a carbon intensity that's 20% below gasoline until 2022, and they haven't changed that. So, and unfortunately, the whole world looks at that carbon intensity rating and says, well, geez, corn ethanol is no good. Now, on the other hand, the Department of Energy... That Oregon, the Greek modelers that model that most of the people in the world use, and California uses, and our Oregon uses to determine the carbon intensity of biofuels, says that carbon intensity of corn grain ethanol right now is about 52 grams per megajoule, and that'd be about 45 or 47 percent below fossil fuel gasoline. So EPA is just um, way behind. They haven't. Continued to work on that, whereas Argon, the guys that do the GREAT model, they update that every year, and they they do tons of work and tons of data collection to keep that up to date. So I think if once they get this done, and let's say we get a ten to fifteen, or maybe even twenty gram credit on corn grain ethanol for for soil carbon sequestration, that would put corn grain ethanol way down, you know, around thirty, maybe wow. thirty five, maybe forty, somewhere in there. So Clearly, in the range of, 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 of an of they advanced biofuel. Yeah, for sure. You're in so, renewable. You're yeah. in
0: renewable diesel country. That's uh, that's about an, an average for renewable, some renewable diesel, which is mm-hmm. pretty amazing.
1: Yeah, we continue to work on that. Really pleased with the uh, folks at Argonne. They're just some really open, open-minded, and really top scientists.
0: So I was going to ask you a couple questions, a couple follow-up questions. One, assuming we had a, you know, we see a 30 CI type grain ethanol, how do you see that changing the market? I mean, the RFS is what the RFS is. So then, you know, you've got an advanced Mm -hmm. biofuel, but the structure of the law really doesn't you know, really, the, it, the, you know, the structure of the law is what the structure of the law is. However, it's a different ball game in California. So how do you see the market changing if that comes to be, you know, this, this kind of level of CI?
1: Really good question, Tammy. Uh, and you're exactly right about the, you know, the RFS that, you know, that would, ha- that would take a lot legislative change to give cornstarch ethanol the ability to, to be an advanced biofuel. Mm-hmm. even though the carbon intensity may be well within that range. But it's quite different in California, in Oregon, and mm-hmm. especially in international markets. As yes. you probably know, Renova Bio uh, has been yep. developed in Brazil. So any any gallon of ethanol that goes to Brazil now will have a, have a carbon intensity attached to it. Mm-hmm. So that makes this ultra important for international markets and California and Oregon. Now, a really key consideration here is uh, achieve these kinds of reductions. I think it's likely that those markets will blend even more and more ethanol in their markets because they represent such a significant reduction in carbon intensity. For instance, California needs to reduce their carbon intensity quite fast now going forward. And they're really going to need some low carbon fuels to fill that market. And corn ethanol happens to be the one that can be economically produced at pretty high volumes so if we can prove that you know we have relatively low carbon intensity it's likely that they'll they'll change to 15% ethanol relatively quickly or 20% or maybe wow. even you know higher than that so and I know for a fact right now that there's a, there's a couple of three companies in California that are really really expanding their EA5 network network of stations. And they're just really selling it because of the the premiums or the well the the carbon intensity reduction credits they get mm-hmm. for, yeah. for blend, blending high levels of ethanol. So I think it's uh, it could expand our markets uh, both domestically and international internationally a lot. You know, above the ten percent ethanol, the current ten percent ethanol blend rate.
0: Yeah, the other thing, the other program that we have out there, we don't know how it will uh, evolve because it's under development, is the uh, Canadian Clean Fuel Standard. Uh, of course, there's always been a, a, a tradition of, you know, cross-border trade, uh, you know, on uh, on, on mm-hmm. ethanol. So that could be another sort of uh, in- interesting uh, market as well.
1: But, I forgot to mention Canada and Mexico are yeah. next-door right. neighbors, you know, yeah. Canada is a uh, we send a lot of ethanol to Canada. And and yeah, uh, well, some provinces, provinces in Canada right now have clean fuel programs that require carbon intensity reduction. So the whole nation goes to that. You know, it'll be even a bigger demand.
0: So I wanted to ask you about the industry reaction because the one thing that kind of surprised me when I was first uh, interacting with you, you know, last year about this and you know we were talking, and uh you know I was doing my my research so when i just for the listeners, when I'm researching particular issues or writing re- reports uh for clients, you know I really try to actually you know it's, it's you know you you do your due, due diligence in terms of you know research um out there, but part of the research is actually talking to talking to people and sort of leveraging the network but anyway, to come back to the the question that I want to ask. The one thing that really surprised me when I was digging into this is, I mean, you've seen a few things, you know, out there in the in the media or in the trade press about this, but this is kind of like a big story, like a sleeper uh, sleeper hit at the movies. You know, it's like because I see the, I mean, it, I see like this uh, fundamental: if these things happen, and they seem to be progressing and evolving. I mean, I see fundamental, you know, potential change in the market. And it's almost like, you know, no one's really talking about it. And I'm surprised. Um, So why do you think that is? I mean, are your own industry colleagues, fellow producers, you know, just not really plugged into this? Do they not really sort of see it or they just sort of do, or, you know, it just seems real quiet on this issue.
1: Uh, Yeah, I'd have to agree. Frustratingly. So it's just, um, you know, I I try to do my best and try to, and, you know, I know, you know, I talked to the guy, obviously being on the American coalition for ethanol board of directors, it's, it's one of the top priorities for us to try to, make this known by every way, everybody. And the RFA, to a certain extent, too, has been real supportive of all this. But yeah, you know, um, I wish we had a bigger megaphone. It just uh, takes a lot of money to do this education to shout at the top of our lungs. You know, these these are changes, they're real. You know, the Department of Energy has, has charted this reduction in corn grain ethanol very nicely in their model over the decades. and we just continue to get better and cleaner all the time. And it's frustrating that lots of people, more people, don't know about this. So, do we need to clone you, I think, Tammy? And, <laughs> and have folks oh. like you out there you know, shouting from the top of their lungs that this, ha- this is going to happen. So, and well, happening. it's
0: happening. Yeah, well, it's just interesting to see it as an analyst and just sort of seeing the big picture and trying to communicate that to, cl- to, to clients in the affected industries, whether they're, you know, auto oil, biofuel, ethanol, so on and so mm-hmm. forth. And it's like, oh my God, this is a really big story. And when I wrote about this and did the the research for it almost two years ago, yeah, well, you know, clients, clients in the industry weren't really, were not really were not even aware of this. And I was just kind of scratching, scratching my head uh, about yeah. it because it's, it's really, you know, it seems, I mean, I think part of the problem is that it's. You know, it's kind of like that uh, movie Up, if you if you've ever seen it. You know, and the dog like squirrel. You know, and I think, <laughs> and yeah. I think, yeah. I think that the industry is focused on, you know, and I do want to ask you this at the end that they're focused on. Don't mess with the RFS. I think they're focused on, you know, E15 or bust, and anything that falls mm-hmm. outside of that. You know they ain't interested, and I'm kind of like, well, I mean, mm-hmm. you're kind of like, you know, as an outsider, as an analyst, I kind of look at it and mm-hmm. I'm like, um, you kind of might be missing the big picture here. <laughs> so it's just sort of interesting, mm-hmm. and that's kind of my theory that people are not, and, it, and it's technical, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, soil carbon is uh, it is probably not the sexiest topic, but that's where the that's mm-hmm. that's that's where the real you know you've got to look for the non sexy topics because that's where the juice ends up kind of being or the or the gold nugget, so to speak and in, in my my own experience, but that's my theory um as to why the the industry might not be so much focused on this because they're so overwhelmingly focused on the r f s agenda, which from their perspective is understandable, but I think maybe you know shoots at the caboose a little bit
1: <laughs> yeah you think about the whole climate change debate. You know, it became so political and I'm still scratching my head how it came, became so for it or you're against it kind of based on your political, the way you lean politically. Mm -hmm. And of course, now we've got the Republican administration and they're in folks like, you know, oil guys running the EPA and running the Department of Energy. They're going to do everything they can to try to discredit biofuels the way I see it. So it's, it's super frustrating now. You know, the EPA is doing little or nothing on this now. And it's just, and in the meantime, climate change is such a long-term thing that people think, well, you know, it's maybe affect my, some family member decades or even hundreds of years from now. But why worry about it now? But I guess um, I hope not too many people think that way because it could be the existential threat in our lifetimes to the planet.
0: So. Well, as someone who just replaced her roof last week <laughs> <laughs> yeah. because Hurricane Irma ripped it off, basically
1: oh, uh, last
0: year, mm-hmm. I am not one to uh, I'm not one to really uh, argue with that because uh, you know, yeah, was sort of ground zero down here in, in Florida. But I wanted to ask you another question. So, you know, with respect to okay, so this work is progressing with Argonne and will continue to progress. The soil science uh, community, you know, has now gotten involved um, in, uh, you know, in this discussion. Do you see the views of, let's say, the environmental community or, and, or, you know, uh, life cycle modelers who work in this area, do you see, you know, sort of a change in view, let's say, you know, with the, let's say the searchers of the world, so do you see? You know, are these are these people's minds sort of change, um, changing, or are they sort of opening to kind of what's been found?
1: I think they are. Yeah, I think we've made some really nice progress with groups like the Environmental Defense Fund and Union of Concerned Scientists. We've been in meetings with those folks, and uh, they realized that the models weren't the best to begin with, and maybe corn got corn, corn grain ethanol got shortchanged you know the folks in california are are really you know they're paying attention you know in fact they they told us at at that workshop in sacramento that say you know you guys work for the department of energy and get this right and we'll probably follow the department of energy's great model if that's changed so and in fact uh, over the last uh, maybe a month or two we're getting some kind of some good feedback from the california air resources board about making they're making statements like Gosh, you know, corn and grain ethanol, you, corn and grain ethanol guys—they're really reducing your carbon intensity when we look at the green model. So I think they're uh, we're gaining some traction with this. I hope, but you know, it takes uh, quite a while to to get opinions changed. And but you know, if you do good science, science with good scientists, and keep hammering away and keep collecting data that all kind of you know looks good for you. It you know, not all of it will look good, but you know, it's uh, the case of, you know, you take all the data and you hash it all out and you take kind of the average and that's how science moves moves forward. So I think uh, I'm positive about it. I think we're making progress.
0: So I wanted to ask you more of a philosophical uh, question. You know, now it seems like, you know, ethanol, grain ethanol would really, you know, stands to really, really significantly benefit uh, life cycle analysis modeling, you know, in, in, in the mm-hmm. way of um what Argonne does with the with the Greek model. But from a philosophical perspective, is life cycle analysis modeling a good way to make policy?
1: Gosh, I you know, I don't see any other way to do it myself. And I think mm-hmm. it's 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 really good stuff. You know, there's those guys at Argonne, like Dr. Michael Wong and Oh, there's several other guys that, you know, just do outstanding work and, you know, it's it's just such a pleasure to work with them because they really take that job seriously. You know, they want to mm-hmm. get it right and, boy, you've got to have peer-reviewed, replicated and randomized studies if you want to get anything done. So when they put their stamp of approval on it, it's it's, it's really going to be good, I think, and it will will make some changes, I think, so... We're hopeful, and we'll keep plugging away and try to make uh, draw awareness to this to this issue, and try to get some funding. And you know, and you gotta realize that the Department of Energy is a little bit standoffish when us corn guys and us ethanol guys lobby for this,
0: because they can't (laughs) be
1: viewed as being as being biased. So the best we can do is just to get them, you know, some peer-reviewed, replicated, and randomized studies over. Many many years and types things. That's how you really get things done with those guys. So they're uh, they got very high standards.
0: Well, and you know, I mean, I guess the the reality of it is, is we live in an LCA world now, right? I mean, that's that that, mm-hmm. that is how policy's being made, um, not just in this country, uh, but in, in other parts of the world as as well.
1: I guess I don't know how else that we could achieve what we're trying to. Trying to achieve with climate change mitigation or without LCA, you know the. Uh, you probably, I'm sure you're familiar with the IPCC, the Intergovern- Intergovernmental mm-hmm. Panel on Climate Change, and you know literally hundreds of scientists around the world have kind of wrote the rules, so to speak, for how this should be done. And you know the, I know the guys at Argonne follow that really closely. Because that that represents a collaboration of, like I said, hundreds of scientists all over the world of, on how to do this and how to do this correctly.
0: So the last question that I wanted to ask you is, what did you think about the president's E-15 announcement? And how do you feel about the prospects of E-15 for E-15 going forward? And, you know, the question everybody wants to know, what do you think is going to happen to the RFS?
1: yeah uh boy. That's a really positive development. <laughs> I think all the ethanol industry just cheered. you know. they don't like some of the other things that's going on in the e p a, for instance, the small refinery waivers that they're giving out so and that's kind of killing our demand on one hand, but they're at least helping with e fifteen and at least started that process. We're hopeful and Pushing for them to have that done by next summer, but it's it's kind of a long, arduous process from what we've been able to understand to get that change made. So, but we're it's a positive development, no doubt about it.
0: What is the outlook on uh, on the the RFS? I mean, there's been talk of reform for you know mm-hmm. years and years. Mm-hmm. You know, do you see it happening in in the new Congress or not, or or something in between?
1: Those of us that Watch this uh, life cycle modeling closely and watch these other markets develop like California, Oregon, Brazil, all those other low carbon markets would, would like to see the RFS morph to more, something more like a low carbon fuel standard, completely agnostic about fuels. You know, it's, it's all about low carbon. It's, it doesn't matter where, where it comes from, what it's made out of. And so that's uh, really is a kind of a level playing field in the most. Makes most sense to get it to do it that way. So I, you know, I'm hopeful that we can morph this RFS to something more like that, but I, I don't know. It's, it's going to be hard. It's a political thing, you know? So, you know, it seems to me there's, there's more and more momentum for low carbon markets, not so much domestically, but for sure internationally. And we'll see, you know, what's, which, which is, which becomes the dominant way to do things. I hope, hope it happens. I guess you know. I think we need to to move to a, a low carbon fuel system, and that's kind of the best and most rational and most economic way to get things done.
0: Yeah, I've been saying this for for years, and have been totally <laughs> shut down by you know folks who really you know you know not 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 ready to talk about it. Don't want to talk about it. Don't see it as realistic. But when I look at it, you know, it would solve a lot of problems. I think for the oil industry, especially, you know, the mm-hmm. ones that have had issues with the RENs and they have had, you know, they really have had legitimate issues with their, uh, you know, RENs compliance costs. You know, it would solve issues for the uh, um, ethanol and, uh, you know, for the ethanol industry. It would mm-hmm. seem to solve issues for the advanced biofuel. I mean, it, it's not a silver bullet. But I certainly see the, the benefits that there, there there has been, um, you know, a lot of resistance to, to doing this, but it just seems really logical mm-hmm. to me anyway.
1: Yeah, you know, every once in a while I get really encouraged when I read things like, oh, for instance, it was several months ago now, but I think uh, like guys like Hank Paulson and George Schultz and some big hit- hitters, maybe maybe a couple of other big guys were in there too, but they're, you know, Really promoting and trying to get the discussion going on a on a nationwide carbon tax. Those uh, sin taxes, I'm going to call them, have been really pretty effective. You know, the sulfur dioxide and those things have, have really did the job and they did it economically and did it with with minimum disruption. So mm-hmm. I think a carbon tax could do the same thing, and that Absolutely. would fit right into a to a low carbon fuel standard. You know, we're talking about fuels in specific specifically here, but um, the carbon tax would would encompass everything across our society.
0: You know, those are the two major uh, policies. The other one is phasing out fossil fuel uh, subsidies, but those are two of the major policies that uh, the International Energy Agency has said, you know, really needs to, you know, happen. They've come out and said, we we do need to have, we will have electrification, electrification is important. We also need biofuels, but these kinds of things need to happen in order to really see the type of scale up to really, you know, sort of make a dent. And, um, you know, those mm-hmm. were those were two of them: is, um, you know, carbon tax, low carbon fuel, technology neutral policies, and of course, uh, you know, uh, you know, ending fossil fuel subsidies was a was another one. So it's uh, it is, you know, it it, it what you're saying aligns with what they're saying over there in <laughs> in Europe.
1: Which is where the IEA is. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's and it's uh, like we've mentioned before, it's happening elsewhere. Japan, uh, I suppose you read, it's been months ago now, but they announced that they're going to start using corn grain ethanol rather than sugarcane ethanol in their fuel because it's it meets their low carbon standard over there now. So other places are paying attention. You know, Malaysia and India now are talking about some ethanol and. China's, you know, importing ethanol. Yep. So lots of international opportunity, I think. It's all going to be measured on carbon intensity. You know, that's, that's what they're, they're after.
0: So I think, I think it will be, uh, you know, one of the things that I've observed about the, the international markets is maybe not every one of those countries will set a low carbon fuel standard, but what they will do is sort of, um, you know, they'll say, well, well, we'll import corn ethanol or we'll import sugarcane ethanol. We know it's a, you know, it's a low carbon intensity fuel because it says so in Renova Bio, it says so, you know, in the in the LCFS and they will sort of, they won't adopt the structure of an LCFS because they won't have the resources to, you know, enforce such a regulation, but they'll sort of bring in the fuels by fiat or, or by extension, you know, if you will. I do see that happening.
1: Good point. I think that's really uh, quite likely.
0: Well, Ron, I want to thank you so much uh, for being on the show today. It was a pleasure to have you and to have you talk to us about soil carbon accounting. I never thought in my fuel <laughs> career, um, yeah. you know, I never really heard of soil carbon accounting, yeah. um, but now I have, and um, and I do see it this well, as a as a real game changer.
1: Well, when you get to the Midwest sometime, Tammy, and see all this corn growing out out there, just uh, look at it as a big solar collector in a big carbon <laughs> fixation machine, because it's, uh, sure, it's quite astounding.
0: I, I sure will. I, I sure will.
1: Well, thanks so much for giving thank me you. a bigger voice and a, and a bigger you. megaphone here.
0: You bet. I appreciate and it. And for the listeners, I want to thank you for listening uh, today. And if you're looking for more insight and analysis on future fuels issues, head to my website, futurefuelstrategies.com, and sign up for my free bi-weekly newsletter. Thanks again for listening.